Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Tuesday, March 21st, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the link that says Start Here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using for over 18 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again, absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. If you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials And if you have any of those to share with us, please do so. Give us a call at 563-999-3581. When you call that number and press the number 1 on your phone, it will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number, and I will be able to turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. We appreciate whenever anybody chooses to do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work 
And the intention we have with this work is to be a service. So if you're so inclined, give us a call and let us know how we can be of service. 563-999-3581. Once you call that number, press 1 on your phone. Area code 610, I believe this is Susan. It is, thanks. I'm able to be on the show because my light doesn't leave till after the shows. So I have a question. I've probably asked a, 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 a version of this question before, but when you say these tools have helped with my relationships, but then you put in most, of course, when you say that, that doesn't mean that one relationship has got you in shreds and the quality of your life is deeply gone, but the relationship hasn't improved or something. And anyway, that's a, that leaves a little room for the fact that sometimes things don't go the way we want them to. And I had a rude awakening the other day. I told you about it a little grandson who we were hoping was healing uh, from what looked like a bipolar slash narcissistic personality disorder like his father. Um, He was severely threatened by the fact that some money might not come his way that he thought he was entitled to even though it would be coming to his mother. And I guess in his mind, he has thought that he's going to be supported all along the way and that he is not capable of earning his own living. What happens when he gets scared is he gets totally and utterly beyond nasty. Says things that, I mean, says things about Tim has, Tim Bingham has been uh, paying for his college tuition, his parking garage, his meals, and his apartment because his father is not stepping up with any of that. And yet he says the most incredibly rude things about us, like the fact that we're manipulative, we're privileged. I mean, he just lays on the insults which blows my mind. He's a very smart guy. And I do my tools, and I still feel terribly destabilized and kind of sick when he launches into his, his act, which I thought, I thought they were over. So I just wanted to ask about the most of my relationships situation and how mental illness might figure into maybe helping us create an adjustment to the tool using. I don't know how to put it. Well, so, you know, the the reason I took to saying that is because I would get some questions from people like you and about and from others about these relationships not turning out the way I want them to. And so I decided to, 
you know, make it very clear that when I apply these tools, it's not a magic wand that makes my life begin to turn out exactly the way I want it, and nothing unwanted ever shows up in my life. That's not what happens when I use these tools. As a matter of fact, I have talked quite openly about how since, you know, 19 or 20 years ago when I was first introduced to these tools, I've had a number of life events that I would have labeled catastrophic or tragic or, you know, hateful and unwanted. And so it's not that, hallelujah, the tools have arrived and life is bliss and nothing but bliss. But Mm -hmm. I've said quite what I believe is quite clearly and openly that I can't even imagine going through those life events and struggles without these tools because these tools have been so beneficial Mm -hmm. for me to mitigate the negativity that I generate when things don't go my way. And so I might have hopes for my career or I might have hopes for a relationship and I might have hopes for my health and I might have hopes for my recreational opportunities and life may go in a dramatically different direction than what I was hoping. And what I've learned from the, the, under the study of this work and these tools and how the laws of our, mental, emotional, psychological, physical universe are operating, what I've learned about it is I don't need to keep generating negativity and blaming it on things outside my control, which leaves me, you know, defining myself as and living the experience of being a victim. I don't need to keep doing that. So I can, you know, have a conflict with somebody or a disagreement and I can offer let's have a discussion, let's sort it out and they might reject me out of hand. They might reject Mm -hmm. me by ignoring me or they might reject me with all the negativity and venom that your grandson is capable of. The point I'm trying to make when I make that statement, most of my relationships is I don't have any control over that. The Mm. only thing I have control over is what do I do with the energies in me that I create and, and or get stirred up because I've, you know, stored them from traumatic experiences in the past or whatever that I begin to experience when I choose an interpretation for life events that I don't like, that's what I have control over. And so, you know, I've, I remember I, I was in um, a relationship with a, you know, a fully adult woman. Um, this was after my um, divorce and, and years after that. And I started dating this woman and I was fully in in full swing. I was four or five years into the work with Dr. Michael Rice, and, you know, the Internet show hadn't started yet, but I had had Michael Rice come to 
this area that I live in like three different times over the years. I'd been down to Heartland. I was on, you know, email lists with people trying to sort things out. And I was leading the support group on Tuesdays for years. So I was actively applying these tools in my life. And I was in this relationship with this woman. And she had a very strong pattern of getting upset at people and staying upset with them unless they agreed that she was right and they were wrong and then making some kind of amends or apology. Mm-hmm. And so eventually, the longer we were in the relationship, the more that clashed with everything that I was learning and teaching people in my therapy sessions and had been teaching you know, for 25 or 30 years before I met Dr. Michael Rice and these tools, it was very much the same thing that I you know, distilled out of my therapy work and my family life. And so I had pretty good track record for a lot of years about how to handle discord in a relationship or disagreements and conflict resolution. And this woman kept saying, well, what if you're wrong? What if you're, mm-hmm. what you're doing really is hurting me? And she would use examples like, um, you know, maybe you, you, you say you didn't intend to hurt me and there's no malice or forethought in, in what you did, but if you run over my foot with your car, my foot is still broken even though you didn't intend it. She would give examples like that for how yeah. I'm responsible for her anger or sadness or disappointment when I didn't say or do what she wanted me to say or do. Mm -hmm. And it ended up that it blew up so many times during the last year of the relationship. It was a five-year relationship. It blew up so many times in the last year that eventually she just said, get out. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay. And I said, okay. I have to acknowledge that she doesn't want a kind of a relationship that I want. She, the, mm. the kind of relationship that works really well for me wasn't working well for her. And rather than me trying to get her to change or change myself to please her, I acknowledge that we're just not seeing this the same way. And it's, an, it's a, one of those deal breakers in a relationship. So that's the kind of thing that I'm alluding to when I say mm-hmm. most of my relationships, I don't want to be in the fantasy yeah. of, hey, look, these are miraculous tools and you can create any kind of life you want and you can make people do and be what you want them to be. That's not what this is about. This is about, at deeper and deeper levels, 100% responsibility, living into the realization that I've always been 100% responsible for the emotions that I'm experiencing because I'm the one creating them. And the more I do that, the better I get at being in situations like you're in with your grandson and realizing any negative emotional state you experience, even in the face of his being nasty and aggressive, and anything negative you experience from that is your creation. And the good news is, It's not coming up to punish you. It's coming up so that you can get access to it to dismantle it. And then 
the more you work on that, the more you dismantle the, neg- the negativity and the upset, the, the easier it is for you to stay loving and compassionate. And believe me, that doesn't mean doormat. It doesn't mean that you mm-hmm. just let him say that without consequences. And but But you grab a hold of the processing in your own mind that says, oh, my gosh, he's not healed, and what if he never heals, and this is so bad and depressing, and I thought he was better, and you don't let your mind go into that negative spin for very long before you take a breath, calm yourself a bit, turn the focus inside, and ask yourself, okay, what is in me that can be released right now? in terms of the negativity, in terms of the negative belief about life and self and the future, because that's something that's under my control. That's something I can actually apply the tools to in this next moment and get benefit from. What my grandson chooses to do, the battles he's fighting with his inner turmoil and his traumatic life experience, that's not under my control. What I share with him, the energy that I create and present to him when I'm interacting with him, that is under my control. I just had a a conversation with somebody earlier today, and it's one of the things that has been so rock-solidly true over the last, what will soon be 49 years of doing therapy, is that the more I help people, learn to stay firm and loving and consistent as they interact with their loved ones, whether these are their parents or children or siblings or coworkers, whatever, the better it works out. And years ago, I worked with a gentleman who his wife was cheating on him and lying about it. And then um, the lying came to an end because she got caught by the police having sex in public. And so... And and so, you know, you can't really hide that. It's in the newspaper, blah, blah, blah. So now he had to come to terms with the fact that the marriage wasn't going to last. And the next thing around it was she got really nasty, and she's going to take the kids from him, and she's going to accuse him of being physically abusive, et cetera. So he got thrown out of the house, and he's got these two teenage daughters and his wife their mother is doing everything she can to poison their minds against him and he's seeing me in therapy and we just worked at just be there as consistently as you can but she throws up this roadblock and that road and I just worked with him to say look so now she's accused you of being violent and you don't get to be on the property so You park your car out in front of the house. You tell your kids, and Saturday is your day that, you know, we're supposed to be together. And I can't force you to come out. I don't want to force you to come out. But I will be there on Saturday morning. And I will sit out there for, pick your time, 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half. You can read, right? You can listen to your favorite music. You can meditate. And wait for your daughters to come out. If they come out, great. And you tell them this ahead of time. If they don't come out, you say, okay, well, maybe next weekend that's my weekend. 
and just be the active presence. Call and leave messages. Oh, she erases the messages. Okay, but she has to erase them. You can keep calling. This is back when we had, you know, people didn't have cell phones or email. We just had voice message machines. Just find a way to keep sending the message to your children that you care about them, you love them, and you're going to be there for them as much as you can, as much as they will allow. And eventually, this situation will correct. Well, it was years, and all through the high school years, they were like in the seventh and eighth grade when we first started working together. So all through high school, he had one form of rejection after another, and I just coached him about how to stay loving and dismantle the upset and just be there for his kids and know that it'll work out. First one goes to college and contacts him. Immediately, hey, I, Mom doesn't know I'm calling, but that's okay. Um, can we get together? <laughs> and then the second oh one goes to college, and now they're both contacting him. And eventually, you know, that, that whole thing just it worked out because he didn't buy into the anger and bitterness. He didn't badmouth his ex-wife in front of the kids, despite the fact that she was actively smearing his name to the kids, you know, filling them with lies. But that's what I mean by it works for me because I don't spend my energy in that negativity. And anybody that I have the opportunity to be in a relationship with has access to that. They have Mm -hmm. access to what I'm putting out. And if I only put out the positive, you know, the ancient, it's not ancient, but I think it was Ben Franklin or one of those great minds who said, the very best thing to do when you find out that somebody is telling lies about you is to live in a way that proves them wrong. You don't say they're wrong. You don't shout them down. You don't take out a billboard. It's just Mm. living your life in a way that demonstrates the opposite. And when I do that, say that again. Uh, Whoa, (laughs) keep talking. That's just quite a story, and it's a very familiar one. When I do that, well, it, it comes up today because I just got off the phone with another patient who hasn't been mm-hmm. to see me for four or five years, but she told the same story. Mm-hmm. You know, one, of, one of her two kids after the divorce got, you know, sweet-talked by the ex-husband, father, et cetera, and um, decided not to have any contact with her and... Then she went to divorce mediation, and fortunately the divorce mediator said the same kind of thing I had said to her in therapy and coached her through staying positive, and it's the very, it's the very same thing. And eventually, you know, if she doesn't turn on the other father, doesn't spill more hatred into the mix, stays loving, and is there for him in any way that she can be, then all of it starts to work its way out. Why? Because there's this genetic urge within us to have, to achieve and to maintain a connection with our parents. Love and acceptance, Mm -hmm. you might say, approval, you might say, whatever the word is, it's almost as though it's in the genetics. It's in the genetic code. 
Mm-hmm. And I've told stories about working with kids that were severely abused as infants and young children, and now I'm working with them in a therapeutic day school, and I get coached by people, whatever you do, don't say anything bad about their parents or the abuse they went through when they were younger. Why? Because they will literally try to scratch your eyes out. Right? It, because it doesn't matter. They are the parent. And if I can get parents to understand that no matter how much venom and vitriol flies out of the mouth of a teenager when they're upset with me because I won't let them have the car or have their boyfriend sleep over or whatever, it's not going to override this inherent drive for love and acceptance and all of the good loving energy that I pour into the relationship or into the atmosphere between me and them if they're not choosing to actively engage with me in a relationship at this time. So I can send out that, you know, Pierre Pratervan gentle art of blessing energy and it's just as real as actively being with them and going to the store and buying them something. Mm-hmm. I may not see the results instantly, but it doesn't mean it's not real. That's so interesting, that story, because my daughter's husband did that, poisoned the minds of his boys against her, and they've all, well, two of the three are with her now, and realizing their father isn't well, she doesn't say bad things about him. She has held that space, and she's gotten them back. The middle boy is the one I'm talking about who spends a lot of time with his with his father and gets a lot of negative input about my daughter and about her parents, which is Tim Bingham and me. And so it's that's a it's just an amazing story and good to be reminded. My question though is somewhere in between Two, two juxtaposing things earlier. Is it okay if I go back there? Because yeah. how, how I react to my grandson, it's true. It's my responsibility. It's my work to be okay to hold a loving space. I'm talking, I'll start from another angle. I have a good friend whose daughter is bipolar in a similar way than my grandson, but living at home, 27 years old, having affairs, prostituting herself. She's still living at home. She's One day she'll be completely docile, helpful, doing the dishes, dressing properly. The next day she'll go out with practically nothing on and go sell herself. And she is horrible to her parents when she's in the dark side. And it's a kind of horrible... It seems outside the circle of normal pe- per, a normal person's rage or mood swings. It is it, it feels demonic, and I know I'm putting a perception on it, but there is a quality of about about it that affects my friend, who's the father of this girl. So he says he's just off balance. He feels as if he is going crazy. He feels under siege. He's keeping a loving space because I've told him about the tools and and yet he says, I do all that 
but I need a rest. I need to get her somehow into a safe environment that isn't because we're not safe from her. And he tries to explain to me the quality of the dark thing that happens to her. And it happens with my grandson too. And it isn't because, oh, I'm so sorry, he's not going to be okay. There is some, it's like an entity in the room. And I don't know if I'm even able to, I can't articulate that. And, but in a way I'm saying I, I have no control over that, but I do feel incredibly on edge and unsafe at the best. Like there's an illness in the atmosphere or the air is not the same. Or Does anything I say make any sense? Oh, yeah, a lot of sense. And there are a lot of people who deal with very, very intense, very, very negative situations like this. And there's all kinds of different advice about, you know, how far do you tolerate, what you tolerate and how far you let it go and where you draw the line. And, and that's all... Yeah. You know, case by case, people have to decide what they contain within themselves as human resources and what they're willing to tolerate. Yeah. <clears throat> right. And You're out true. on the street and... months or years ago for a situation like the one you're describing with this friend. And you either, you know, I don't care how old you are, you either abide by the rules of our house or you don't live here. Yeah. And, you know, once they're past 18 years of age in most states, the parents don't have to let them live under their roof if they're not living according to their rules or if they're not willing to be respectful to people in the house, etc. And so some people have the mindset, have the... Uh, core strength, personality strength, to say, okay, this far and no farther. And when you cross this line, you will be leaving our house one way or another. And other people don't have that. So they just don't feel like it's the right thing to do or they don't feel strong enough to do that. And they end up staying in a situation that is actively abusive to them. Yes. That's what's happening here. Right. And that's a situation that's just, you know, case by case. You can't tell anybody what to do with that. You can recommend at a certain point that they get some professional help, but the professional help they get may or may not be good advice for them, may or may not be a good match for their personality. And, again, when I run into that with people, whether they're my own patients or they're people I know in situations like that, I fall back on sending them a gentle art of blessing. I don't mean giving them the book. I mean I start doing the blessing work when I Mm -hmm. think about them, when my mind wants to go dark and negative. And I just, Mm -hmm. I, I correct the energy that I'm generating and experiencing, move it to as loving of space as I can, as quickly as I can, and then move on. Because I don't have control over other people's lives. I mean, I sometimes have people in therapy sessions, and they're choosing to drink the poison, so to speak, right? They're choosing to either sit and think horrible negative things about their ex-husband or their children or their, you know, boss that fired them from a job or whatever, and and or they're sitting and watching the, the most negative news reports around 
the, the country around the globe, and they're getting themselves revved up in rage, mm. and, and and they'll come in for a session. And what do I do with that? Well, I, as long as they're willing to come in for a session, I'll try to keep working with them about choosing differently, choose again, yeah. choose the loving mm-hmm. perspective. But this is a very real thing, and this is upsetting. And that, Okay, well, you could continue to look at that as though this is happening to you, and it's the mm-hmm. news of the world that is upsetting you. Or you could choose to understand that you're choosing to focus in on this very negative slice of the world of the news and that there's always more going on there than just what you're going to get in any news show. Mm -hmm. And if they say, okay, but, and they want to argue with me, there's only so far I'll go in the arguing. And I'll say at some point or another, either you want to benefit from the tools that I have to offer or you don't. And it's okay either way. But I won't pretend with you that you're in therapy and things are going to get better when you keep drinking the poison and you're not doing anything to work or to choose differently. It's okay if you want to choose that, but I won't, you might say, sanction it, right? I won't, I won't right. keep seeing you and taking your money as though this is a therapeutic process when in truth it's not. Yeah. That's good. And I know that there are some therapists that would never do that because they would say, well, you know, at least they, you know, have me and they, you know, if I fire them as a therapist, then that's abandonment and I might trigger their old issues. And and so that's that therapist's perspective. And that therapist Mm -hmm. is perfectly in their rights to choose to practice that way, just like your friend that you described in this situation is within his rights to let his daughter continue to live there and be abusive to him. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. I'm not sure that we answered your question directly, but yes. I'm yes, trying. You, you did. Well, you said, when you said, yes, I've seen that, I have no words for that for the kind of dark uh, state. And when you start trying yeah, to putting, like, put words on it, you come up with things like demonic and possession and things like yeah. that. Nobody that I know knows the truth of any of that. No, I know a lot don't. of people who make up their truths about it, and oh, yes, yeah. it's demonic, and oh, yes, you need a priest to get an exorcism, and oh, yes, you've got to have this... <laughs> You know, spiritual person yeah. come and, and, and exercise the ghosts in the house. I know that people believe in that stuff. I just don't know the mm-hmm. truth of it. Yeah, I've, I've had fantasies of saying, in the name of Jesus Christ. But I don't have that kind of power uh, with my friend and his daughter. But, you know, yeah, those ideas cross the mind. But how do we know we don't? So anyway, well, Dr. Tim, thank you. I have another question, but I wanted to make sure the switchboard wasn't just blaring with other hands up. No, right now we have other people listening, but nobody else has a hand up. So okay. what's your question? A Walk in the Physical, Christian Thunberg, page 108. Intent versus action.
mentioned just the best thing, but I have a question. At the end of the first paragraph, he says, genuine, unconditionally loving intent is the key, not necessarily the actions themselves. Okay. And it's not even the second clause. It's the first clause. Genuine, unconditionally loving intent is the key. How the heck do we get there? I don't think I've ever had a a genuinely, unconditionally loving intent. Did you say page 108? Yes. It's like um, essay 048, if your book is like mine. Yeah, intent versus action. Yeah, I remember hearing this. Um, I think what you, you know, through the course of, of listening to that book, as I've been doing on Audible, what I hear him saying over and over again is that his experience and his knowledge base and his belief system at this point is that strengthening, developing and strengthening that intent is our sole purpose for being here. Okay, so good. How, how, do you, how do you do it? You practice. How do you do yeah. it? You get in more and more d- difficult situations and do your best to keep your intention loving. So he is talking about the end result of a, an enlightened person. Yeah. Or, or, or no, okay. no, no. You want to you want to go to this binary all or nothing kind of thing and the end result thing. That's what this sounds and like, Doctor Kim. I, I know, I know, but but listen, but listen. <laughs> you don't have to go there, right? You can keep it as a process. You can think, I'm like yeah. Guy Finley says, I'm the bridge that's under construction. We all, okay, all good. of us in our lives, are under instruction. It's the purpose for being here is to learn and grow. Why are we having a life? Why do we go to school? Why? Because we will be engaged in the process of learning. Okay. That's good. Thank you. And, and, and so here, if you think about that, in his perspective from this book, we only choose to come into the physical because we have the intention to learn and grow and get better at this, at this, mm-hmm. what is this, at being more loving, at learning to be more loving in more and more challenging circumstances. So if you consider that as a background, then when he says here in this essay, Intent Versus Action, he says, our deepest intent is what matters. He's saying you wouldn't be in the physical unless your deepest intent was to be loving and to get better and to grow. So you don't need to panic. (laughs) Okay. You don't need to judge yourself as failing. Failing is not optional. You can't fail because you're always learning and growing. So if you take that interpretation of these words and breathe into it, does it help 
dissipate the negativity that you were generating. Yeah, a lot. Thanks. The next line of this says, our deepest intent is always totally unobscured and plainly obvious to the spirit. I think what he's referring to here is the intent that we had as spiritual beings before we came into physical. The intention for being in a physical life is to learn and grow and be more loving in more challenging circumstances. The next line says, in fact... Every intent we've ever held and every action we've ever taken our entire lives is clearly remembered by the whole, capital W-H-O-L-E. And so we learn from them. When our lives are reviewed after the completion, what is applauded is not necessarily what we did but when we truly acted from selflessness and love, genuine, unconditionally loving intent is the key, not necessarily the actions themselves. And he's saying, don't panic because you've got that as a foundation in your true nature as a spiritual being, and that's why you're here, and you will just get better and better at embodying it in the conscious level, the more you work at it, the more challenges you you go through and step back and do the evaluation and use the tools, et cetera. But you don't need to panic because you're not failing. You're just in training. And when you... The last sentence again, genuine, unconditionally loving intent is the key. That is the state of being or mind or heart that has given up all goals so that you can be there without any attachments or expectations or Well, you can have some expectations, but you're not too attached to them. You're not so attached to the expectations or the goals that you're going to give up your conscious connection to your loving nature. Mm. Good. Does that make sense? I mean, it's it's yep. not a bad thing to have a loving intention and a loving goal and some loving expectations. What I do with that varies dramatically based on how attached I am to that or how identified I am with that as opposed to staying identified with my true nature, and that is that loving creative energy looking to express in a way that's a blessing to itself and others in each new present moment. Because that's what loving creative energy does. It extends, it expands, it creates, it loves. And just to just to challenge people who might want to hear me use love as a verb right there. By love, I mean extend, extend the energy of love. Extend the awareness of my true nature 
in in this present moment with my consciousness. That's all we're talking about. That's the goal. Mm-hmm. And that's what loving energy does. It just expands and extends. Well, this has been great. And the best part for me is that I described an indescribable situation with my grandson, and you are, once again, it's as if you're saying, widen the circle, give more space, and take up the gentle art of blessing again. Don't leave off from that, even if you don't ever talk to him again. And you might not at this point. All all texting and phone calls are off. I said, I don't want to do this now, not when we're talking to each other this way. Let's wait. And I'm not hearing anything, and it's you get to catch your breath and relax and rest and but it's good to just keep taking up yeah, that it, position it, again. What 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 you're saying there is something that I try to encourage people to do more often, which is you're setting a boundary that's healthy, mm-hmm. that excludes repeated mm-hmm. abuse. You're saying if you yeah. can't be loving and respectful, let's just not have any contact for now. Let's reconnect when mm-hmm. we can. And that's the kind of thing that some people – don't go for some people say oh no you got to stay connected oh no you it's your own flesh and blood and you can't you know set a limit with them or cut them out or i have the perspective that says please work actively to use the things you have control over to set limits what does that mean boundaries it means you communicate actively with your words and actions you effectively communicate what you think is acceptable and not acceptable and that yeah. sometimes means letting people have the natural consequences for their choices. Even when they don't understand, I mean, one of his favorite things to do is, that is not loving, that is not respectful. You're doing to me what you say I'm doing to you. And, uh, of course, exactly. I want to say, no, I'm not. You know. <laughs> exactly. I don't argue I with that. Right I there. just say I'm Right. I don't argue with that. I just say, I'm sorry that you view it that way. That's not my intent. We're going to have to agree to disagree. And I move along. Yeah. And I understand that, you know, it's the three-year-old who wants another ice cream cone after they've just finished an ice cream cone. And I say, well, no, it's that's they'll probably give you a tummy ache and it's not healthy for you. And, you know, if you're still hungry, you can have a carrot kind of thing. And the three-year-old wants to hit me. And I, I yep. understand that. But I don't mm-hmm. give in. All right. Why? Because I don't love the three-year-old? No, because I have a level of understanding that exceeds what the three-year-old is capable of in that moment. That's all. Yeah. And I'm not going to lord it over the three-year-old, but I'm not going to change what I know to be in my best interest and the three-year-old's best interests just because the three-year-old can't perceive what I'm perceiving in that moment. And I'm going to be as firm and as loving as I can in setting that healthy boundary for the three-year-old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. All right, so somebody else did raise a hand here. I believe okay. it is Dolinda. I am getting the spinning wheel of waiting, waiting, waiting. Let's see if Solinda is there. I'm there. I'm here. Welcome. <laughs> I'm somewhere. Welcome. 
Uh, you, your comment, Susan, and yours, uh, Dr. Tim, spun off so many thoughts in my head that I actually wrote them down, and I'll try to uh, share them with you in what time we have. They're for all of us. Um, one of the things that I realized, because I have come to that awareness previously, quite a while ago, that all language is simply a symbol, and every word that we speak is um, directly linked to our personal life experience. So in spite of Mr. Webster, every one of us, except for the most common words like, would you please pass the salt, um, are interpreted uniquely by each one of us and understood uniquely by each one of us. That's what makes it so fluid, and that's what makes it so being able to be changed, i.e. Lennon or whoever or any of us. Um, That was my first thought. And if there's no comment, um, I will go on to my second one. When I've been doing these wake-up sheets, the most valuable thing about them, and I have also taken the mental four-step worksheet or five-step worksheet, I don't remember, the one that was on one of the wake-up sheets anyway, and I have taken it, uh, the mental short form, four-step, and I've expanded it into a a seven-step, but I've made it very, very simple. And I've used basically that format, kept the language very simple, and then added meaningful language for myself. And I've made my own wake-up sheet, which I'm very pleased with, because my little tiny girl, Cindy, uh, can get it. And I um, realized, by the grace of Magda's sharing, about adding the line about on the goal so I can, that that added line is my investment in an outcome. And as long as I invest it myself in an outcome, regardless of whether it's positive or negative, that I set myself up. And so I really appreciate Magda sharing that. Uh, I also have learned in my life that I have to watch my but because but is an actual negation of the previous statement. So if I use a but, I use it in an obvious way, unless I'm being unconscious, that I am actually negating the previous statement, and that's what I intend to do. So I share that one. I'll use and or also, or yet, or some other word that doesn't have, for me, that meaning of negating the previous. My next point is the little child. This is no obligations now. It's just my sharing. My little Cindy, and God forbid that someone call me that now, because <laughs> my rites of passage is in Celinda. My little Cindy... Um, at three years old, exactly what you said, Dr. Tim, bingo, is expecting to be rewarded for being good. 
and that's totally understandable for the little child, and I understand that, but she's also set herself up, and I think that's one of the things that set us up uh, up for conventional religious training because all religious doctrinized uh, training will be, um, um, what is it, bipolar, (laughs) bipolar, that's a good word, Um, good and evil. Um, And from my experience, I qualify that. And then five, (laughs) I had to chuckle, Dr. Tim, when you said that um, you were going to use love as a verb. I have a friend who is convinced because of some Jewish um, rabbi's book she read that God is a verb. And um, we know that um, there is also the perception that God is love, is a noun. Well, I don't make a distinction between the two, because if someone is love, someone is going to do love. And so if someone uses the language that um, is politically incorrect or not correct, but it is a way for me to bridge with them, with love and neutrality, then I will use the word. And if I feel comfortable using the word because it has a unique meaning to me, I will use it. Um, And my final thing is practicing the middle way. Uh, That is kind of my, you know, stepping between good and evil and um, setting both a space and a boundary for self and others. And that's all I have to say. Well, that's several mouthfuls. So thank you for sharing. I think it's, um, I think one of the things that is so useful for all of us is to come back to how the words that we use don't have any meaning except for the meaning contained in the person who hears them in their experience, the meaning that we give them. And most of the words we're using, talking about our spirituality and our loving things and tolerance, etc., are just symbols of symbols pointing in the direction of stuff that goes beyond words, beyond the ability for words to capture or communicate. And it goes beyond that each new heartbeat. So it's really beneficial for me the more that I release the attachment to you know, specific codified use of certain words and work with what in this most recent essay that Susan was suggesting from the, A Walk in the Physical – that I focus more on the intention, the intention within me and the intention that is attempted to be communicated by the people I'm talking to. So I don't actively correct people who say, I love you, or I really love that, or I I wish you would do this because it would be loving for me. I don't actively correct people like that in my normal relationships we talk about it that way on this show so that we've got a shared understanding about this vocabulary 
and because it's a very useful dynamic in a practical sense of where I'm going to focus my energies moving forward. And I understand I'm the one creating this internal experience, and maybe I'm creating a sense of feeling stuck because I'm referring to this creative energy as love as though it's something I do to somebody or something they're supposed to be doing to me. And if that gets me stuck and I clarify it with the language and all of a sudden I'm no longer stuck, there is a practical benefit to me in doing this. But I just wanted to be clear. I don't don't walk around listening for people using the word love as a verb and then jump in to correct them as though I have some some great knowledge or access to wisdom or knowledge that they don't have. I don't play that game. Right. And um, if my languaging was such that it seemed like that's what I was intending, I wasn't. I was just sharing my life experience. Oh, I didn't think you were intending that. I'm just using that as clarification. This whole thing about language, as important as it can be, it's all just made up. And so (laughs) the bottom line for me is how can I move my experience more day in and day out to be more positive, more loving, more compassionate, more gratitude-based? That's the practical benefit for me in applying these tools on a regular basis and studying how they function. It's because of the practical benefit to me and for those that are along for the ride to those that I'm interacting with. And... I'm okay however anybody wants to talk about it as long as they're getting the results that they prefer. So I thank you both for your comments and questions. I will mute you so you can listen to the second hour. I will remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And welcome Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tim. Appreciate you. And my condolences on the passing of your father. Thank you. It was um, a pleasure to be with him when he left his body. And um, then the next day was really easy when my brothers came in, and it just seemed to flow, and God gave us grace, and it was just really smooth. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome and deserving. Have a wonderful show. Thanks. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of MindShifters Radio. Today is Tuesday, March the 21st. Michael had an appointment this morning. He was um, processing with someone and um, getting some body work done, and he said if he wasn't back for me to play a recording. So he is not back yet. So I'm going to start one that is um, communication, responsibility communication, part one. Thank you. We'll investigate the fact that there are two types of communication. Generally speaking in the world, what we're taught to do is a thing that I like to call projection communication. And that is, we take the output of our minds, what's going on between our ears, and we talk as though what's going on between our ears 
is actually what's happening out there. As opposed to using language that recognizes that what's going on between our ears is unique to us. It belongs to us. It belongs to no one else. And to just give an illustration of that, I'm going to do a piece of art. We've actually done this in a couple of other workshops, but this illustrates the point for us. And that is, if I draw a drawing here, many people look at that drawing and recognize it. And what they'll recognize it as is anything from a Volkswagen to somebody peeking over a table to Kilroy. Oftentimes, we'll get people who will look at that and say, oh, well, that's a two-door igloo. And my offering is that what that is is that's lines on a board and that's all. The meaning of a two-door igloo or a Volkswagen or someone peeking over a table or Kilroy comes from the content of the observing mind. So when this person looks at these lines on the board, depending on the content of their mind, that framework will resonate or cause brain cells to fire. And when brain cells fire, information that is internal to us fills in and gives meaning to this framework. Now, if we took someone from the jungles of Guatemala, this person has never seen anything more complex than a dugout canoe, and we showed them these lines on the board, how long do you suppose it would take for them to figure out that that's a two-door igloo? What teaching would you have to do? What experiences would you have to give this person from the jungles of Guatemala to get them to even conceive of this possibly meaning a two-door igloo? We have somebody who lives in a jungle setting in a subtropical region of the world. They've probably never seen temperatures go below 70 degrees. They've never read a book. They've never seen a television. What is this thing that comes from the sky you tell us about that comes down in white flakes? And when it lands on my hand, it is what I know as water. What are you talking about? I mean, how are you going to explain that to the person from the jungles of South America as you attempt to explain a two-door igloo? And then, how are you going to explain to this man that there's actually a place in the world where a wave jumps up out of the ocean and it is so cold that that wave actually freezes in midair, solid. Takes what he knows is a liquid water and turns it into something solid. And that something solid, you're going to find a way to saw this water, to cut this water into blocks and build a structure that people can live in. Water turned solid, and you live in it. How is this guy ever going to make any sense of that? Well, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to give him information. 
You're going to have to help him to build brain cells. And when I talk about building brain cells, I'm not talking about building new physical structure. I'm talking about putting information into that structure. When you look at that and go two-door igloo, you have that information already in your mind. You have all the files that it takes, and, and they'd be pretty significant when you really recognize how many files have to fire simultaneously to give you the idea of a two-door igloo. And how much work you're going to have to do for this fellow to have the brain cells that can even start to conceive of a two-door igloo. So in order for him to hold that meaning, he's got to have that content. When we look at communication, in order for any mind to hold a meaning, that mind has to have that content. And once a mind has that content, if that mind utilizes projection communication, i.e., if I said that is a two-door igloo, there's nothing there about an igloo. The words I'm using describe an interior reality that I hold as a possibility for that framework. Now, let, let's imagine for a minute that our two-door igloo is a very sensitive being, very sensitive person. And I hold, Let's say, for instance, maybe I was um, an Eskimo and life in the igloo is very painful for me. And so I start to describe all of the experiences that an igloo means to me, all of the content that I have. But I use words that make everyone around me think that everything I'm experiencing inside of me is all the fault of the igloo. And this sensitive igloo goes, what, you're blaming me for all of that pain? But I had nothing to do with it. When we utilize projection communication, we use words that attempt to say that the content of our mind must be about someone else. And once you recognize how this mind works, and the role that words play in it, what you'll recognize is that the words that you use to describe the content of your mind are describing the content of your mind. The minute you insist that those words must be true about someone else, and that someone else doesn't hold that as true about them, you're going to end up with a conflict. And chances are you'll put an end to communication in that situation. Our objective with this workshop is to assist people to be able to open their communication. When I can use what we'll describe tonight as responsibility communication, I'm going to use words that represent to whoever I'm speaking the reality that I understand that I am describing the content of my own mind and that my communication is about taking the content of my mind and intact getting that meaning 
into your mind. We're going to describe that as communication. That's going to be our definition. And when you decide that you really want to communicate, I would offer that needs to be your primary goal. I hold a reality that belongs to me. I am attempting to get the reality that belongs to me intact into your mind. If I can do that, I have communicated successfully. If I use words that tell you that the content of my mind is accurate about you, then I'm not likely to be able to communicate. I'm not likely to be able to get the content of my mind accurately into your mind because I'm going to run into some interference. We're going to offer a definition tonight of a word. And the definition we're going to offer is that a word is a tool of communication. Does that sound like a reasonable definition to everyone here tonight? That a word is a tool of communication? Hello? Yeah, I need to hear you. And when we use words, is it reasonable to assume that, that wor those words are indicative of an interaction between two or more people? In this case, I'm one and you as a group are the other. So my using words is an indication of an interaction between us. Reasonable? Okay. So now, what I'm going to ask you to do is to notice that right now in your head, there are words running. And you're not communicating those words with anyone. If words are tools of communication, indicative of an interaction between two, who's in there with you? Who's talking to who? What is it that gives meaning to everything that your mind sees? And particularly if you're in some sort of emotional upset, also informs you that your upset is the responsibility of the person you're attempting to communicate with. And I would offer that your reality, that is the output of your mind, is your responsibility and your responsibility only. If you attempt to communicate to me in a way that indicates your reality must be true about me, let's say I've done a particular behavior, and you insist that that behavior means something, your insistence that that behavior means something really means that if you did the behavior I did, that that's what it would mean. But if you insist that when you describe your reality that that meaning must be true about me and I don't happen to hold that as true and I don't happen to like that, then chances are we're going to put an end to communication. So communication isn't about insisting that someone else agree with your reality. That's a whole different process than communication. Communication is about getting the reality you have intact into the mind of the person that you're speaking to. And there's kind of a, an interesting uh, thing to do with translations. There's a, a website you can go in and you can put a phrase into this website and it will translate it into different languages for you.
And oftentimes, you know, you hear people who speak different languages, and let's say you, you're talking with someone who speaks Italian, and there's someone else who speaks Italian with them, and they're trying to communicate something with you, and, and they turn to their friend who's also Italian and says, well, how do you say that in English? And their friend says, you can't say that in English. There's certain ideas that just aren't translatable because I, words describe content of mind, and content of mind is unique and individual and cultural. Certain cultures don't have the same experiences that others have. And so their ideas are not translatable. So the, the name of my main workshop is Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And so we put Why Is This Happening to Me Again into a translation program that comes up with translations from several different languages. So here's Why Is This Happening to Me Again when it translates into French. Why this occur is with me still. And then if we take that and translate it back into English, and then we put that translation into German, then what it will come out in German is, why step this still is with me up? And then if we put that into Italian, what comes back from an Italian translation is, why ago a step this anchor is with me in on? You can see things are getting a little more complicated. Let's take that and put it into a translator and put it back into English. And in English, what it comes back as, why has a stage this shoring is with me inside on? Interesting little change from why is this happening to me again. But it's kind of an indicator of what happens when you go through the brain cells of different people. We've all you know, played that parlor game where we whisper a phrase to someone and it goes around the room and see if you recognize it when it comes out of the other side of the room and often it's not recognizable. And the reason is not because people don't remember the phrase. The reason is because the phrase is a string of words that resonates content. And that content that fires then is communicated with a string of words that accurately represent for the person who was listening the first time around. It brings words forward to describe the content that came forward and so the ideas have changed. By the time you get that through 20 different minds, 20 different translations, because the truth is none of us speak the same language. Oh, we call it English. Winston Churchill said we have the privilege of being separated by a common language. Because when I speak a word, I naturally expect that the word means the same for you as it does for me. And when you understand how the human mind works, that's simply not the truth. It just doesn't work that way. In fact, words are so powerful at directing human perception that if you go back 2,000 years ago in the Aramaic language, we hear a phrase when it's translated through the Greek that goes something like this. The eye is the lamp of the soul. If the light for you is darkness, how deep will your darkness become? Have you ever read that phrase out of the Greek scriptures and gone, huh, what, what does that mean? If we go to the Aramaic, here's what that phrase says. There's some interesting 
Harvard research that was done that says that in a time frame where 10,000 brain cells fire, that is, there are 10,000 measurable units of electrical activity, that the maximum amount of information that shows up in the conscious mind is nine bits of data. It's estimated in that same time frame that there are approximately 20 trillion bits of data potentially available. So our mind uses a tiny fragment of what's going on in the world and takes a tiny fragment of what goes on in the mind to build its reality. And what was said in the Aramaic 2,000 years ago was the perceptual output of your mind, your reality, is the light or the guide for your journey through the 20 trillion bit world. It is the light for your earthly life. In Aramaic, darkness was hostility or fear. And so that next sentence says, if the light, that is the thing that guides you, is darkness. In one of our earlier workshops, we made a couple of inquiries of people. We asked folks how many had ever held a newborn child. And we asked each person who had held a newborn child to give us a descriptor that described the essence of that newborn. And we put a list on the board, and the list that we came up with was that the newborn was awesome, was love, was purity, peace, sweetness, inner sense, joy, wonder, and angelic. And we noticed that every word that described the newborn was some variation on the theme of love. And we offered the thought that that, that love, the words that describe the newborn, are the words that describe our essential nature. And that our essential nature, our being, is love. That, in Aramaic, is light. If the light for you is darkness, and then we ask people, how many have ever done something you regret? Anybody ever do something you regret? And then think back to a time when you did something you regretted and, and look at what you were feeling as you did that. And we created another list. It's interesting to note, never in all the thousands of people that I've asked these two questions of, has anything from this side of the list ever turned up over here when we asked people when they did something they regretted? Regret always involves some form of hostility and fear. In Aramaic, that's darkness. And so what Yeshua was saying 2,000 years ago is there is a way to keep your intelligence turned on, and there is a definable way to turn it off. If hostility or fear, if that for you is the light, then how deep will your darkness become? What kind of things will you do to destroy yourself if the activity of hostility or fear is in your mind when you do a behavior. So this perceptual mind, and, and I, I like to use an example of, you know, how many here have ever been to Mammoth Cave? Anybody ever been to Mammoth Cave? It is absolutely mammoth. I mean, it's unbelievable the size of this cave. Imagine that we put you in Mammoth Cave and we give you a pen light. Now, in Mammoth Cave with a pen light, you can see one little tiny fragment of the cave at a time. I mean, it's just so huge, it's unfathomable. And that pen light 
can only show you the tiniest bit of it at a time. That's kind of like the human nine-bit mind looking in a 20 trillion bit world. Now let's imagine that we told you that we have a clear plastic bag and we put a million dollars worth of diamonds in the bag somewhere out in plain sight on the wall of the cave and if you can get the diamonds and get out of the cave alive, they're yours. What would be the most important skill you could have? Wouldn't it be the ability to point the light in the right place at the right time for what you need to do next in the cave to get to the diamonds and get out with them? Let's imagine that you use the light and you look and you look and you carefully search the wall of the cave and finally you see that glitter of the diamonds. You go, I've got them. There they are. And in order not to lose them, of course, you keep the light shining on the diamonds and you go charging off toward the diamonds. And you don't use the light to show you the 30-foot pit in front of you. You've got a serious problem, right? Well, that's exactly the same if you allow either hostility or fear to enter into your mind. If so, your lights are out. And if that becomes your guidance, then you'll do things you regret. And that's that phrase, how deep will that darkness become? If you want to do real communication in your relationships, in your life, the first thing you need to do is maintain intelligence. The first step to maintaining intelligence is to keep the lights on. You've got to keep love active in your mind. And many people have thought of it as a religious principle when they said to Yeshua 2,000 years ago, what's most important in the law? And it's made to sound like some kind of something that belongs to some old fogies in the desert and, you know, thousands of years ago, and it really doesn't have much to do with us modern, updated people today. But he said the first law was, when you think of an object of attention like the Creator, your neighbor, or yourself, you've got to keep your lights on. You've got to stay connected to love. Because if you don't, then darkness is your guide. How deep will your darkness become if hostility or fear is your guide? So that becomes the first rule to communication. You want to make sure that you stay connected and you keep your lights on. You keep love active in your mind. And Yeshua goes on to tell us about the power of words. In fact, he says that every idle word will be accounted for. Now, one of the things we do a lot in this work, there's a course we do called Laws of Living. And in Laws of Living, we get into a thing we call regulatory speech. And regulatory speech is that the words that the mind uses to regulate our physiology, to regulate our creative process, and to regulate what we see in our world. And so that's called regulatory speech. And the, the words that people use create such an impact in their physiology, and most people don't recognize that their words have that kind of power. Yeshua gave it so much emphasis that he said, every idle word will be accounted for. Now, when we interact with people in laws of living, we, we actually play a game we call the regulatory peach game. It's kind of interesting how it got the name regulatory peaches. During the laws of living course at Heartland, our teaching center, we were doing this 
course, and there was a, a woman that was there with her three-year-old son. The little guy's name was Orion. And Orion was sound asleep on his blanket beside mom, and, and for a good part of the day, we've been talking about regulatory speech, and Ryan's up, and he's coloring, and he's listening, and he goes to sleep, and finally, he's just waking up out of a sleep as we're getting ready to take an intermission. And someone has gone back into the kitchen and brought out a huge bowl of peaches for a snack. And Orion, kind of rubbing his eyes, wakes up and looks over at these peaches coming out and being placed on the food bar, which is in our classroom. And he says, just loud enough, of course, for everybody in the room to hear, Mom, are those regulatory peaches? Of course, we've been talking about regulatory speech all day. And so we call it the regulatory peach game. And what we do is we invite people to point out to each other the kinds of words that they use and the kinds of power phrases that they use. When people first start to play that game, they oftentimes become very upset because every other word out of their mouths relates to some form of hostility or fear. And oftentimes we'll see people when we, you know, we ask everybody's permission, are you willing to play this game? And, oh, yeah, it sounds great. Sure, point my words out to me. But there comes a point where people are like, well, well, why don't you just let me talk? I can't say anything. You just keep... It's like, no, all we're doing is pointing out your words. And when people use words, they have no idea what kind of power those words have oftentimes. I remember working with a young man from uh, uh, one of the northern states. He had moved to Atlanta. He had a lot of challenges with his parents, and like he was out of there. He was not having anything to do with them. And one day his parents called and said they were on their way to Florida. They were coming through Atlanta and wanted to visit with him, spend some time with him. The first words out of his mouth were, my parents are a pain in the you-know-what. The day his parents arrived, he got hemorrhoids. The day his parents left, his hemorrhoids left. That's the power of our words. Watch how you communicate with yourself and that your communications toward yourself come through a mind with the lights on, where love is present. Because when you utilize hostile and fearful power phrases toward yourself, you can be creating things in your life that you really don't want to create. You can be creating things in your life you really don't want to create. And once you recognize that, then you start looking at those power phrases. Because what we know is we live in a world of energy. We don't live in a world of matter. And in this world of energy, the energies that we engage in determine how our world unfolds around us. For instance... If you watch people whose power phrases are things like, I can't stand that, what you'll find is people who end up with foot and leg problems. I can't stomach that. You'll see people oftentimes who have digestive problems. That's a pain in the neck or any other body part. And they end up with problems in that part of their structure because as an energetic system, the structure is always listening and giving a quality to the frequencies we engage in with our thoughts and with our words. There's a cell biologist named Bruce Lipton. We have a, a DVD called Mind-Body Bioenergetics. 
And that DVD is a one-hour television interview with myself and a one-hour television interview with this fellow named Bruce Lipton. He's a cell biologist, and what Bruce is showing is that when you think a thought, and of course that's represented by a word, when you think a thought, that thought literally turns into a molecule in your structure. It solidifies as an energetic device we call a molecule or a neuropeptide. That neuropeptide circulates around in your structure until it finds a cell that has a receptor site that matches. It locks onto that receptor site and then the cell replicates the thought chemically. The neuropeptide is replicated and you get to live with the chemistry of your thoughts. There's an interesting video on YouTube. I just got an email about it and I'm not sure where to find it except that it's, it, the first letters on it are EFT if you want to look it up. It just was put on there in the last day or two. And what it shows is live blood analysis when someone is in a normal, healthy, happy state and how the blood cells move and how they look. And then in this experiment what they did is they had the experimenter and someone who had no idea what was going on, they showed the blood of both of those people, the live blood of both of those people. And then they sent the fellow who is the participant out of the room and the experimenter sends hate to this fellow. And then they bring him back in the room immediately and they do more live blood analysis on both of those people. The blood of the person sending the hate was a disastrous mess. When you look at the way blood is supposed to look under live cell analysis, it was just, I mean, it was so graphic, you could see the difference in it, by the person sending the hate. To hate another is like taking a poison and hoping someone else will die. And then, looking at the blood of the person it was sent to, his blood had also deteriorated. Not, I don't think, because that person was sent hate, but because we are resonant beings, if we have hate in us, then the energy of someone else's hate has a place to land. There's resonance there, and landing in us, it can produce a result in us. And so our words become a real energetic key to how vital and alive our energy system is. And we want to look at that and be responsible for that. One person said that tears are words that the heart cannot express. I would offer that a lack of communication is the cause of death. Oh, Michael, come on now, isn't that a little extreme? Not when you recognize that we're energetic beings and when there's something we don't want to communicate about, it's something we have a thought about that is of hostility or fear. It's something, generally speaking, that we don't want to deal with, that we don't want to hide, that we don't want to communicate about. And it creates such pain and the insight the person had who said, tears are the words the heart can't express is this body-mind unit trying to warn us that there's something we need to be dealing with. And when we refuse to communicate and deal with something, we lock that energy inside of us, and it produces disastrous results. When we can open and communicate, then we can bring that energy out and expose it to the light.
And being exposed to the light, we create a change in that energy. And that change leads to higher levels of health because when we hold this being that we are as love, active and present in our own thoughts, in our own words, in our own feelings, if there's anything of a destructive nature there that doesn't belong there, what happens is that, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> what happens when we hold that destructive energy in the presence of love is that destructive energy starts to deteriorate. It starts to come undone. And so the idea of being able to communicate in the presence of love allows us to open the space in ourselves to bring everything forward, every neuropeptide forward that never belonged in human physiology in the first place. And by exposure to love, it starts to dissolve. It starts to disintegrate. It starts to come undone. And so we want to really be responsible for the quality of power phrases that we use and create a safe space in our lives where we can communicate about absolutely everything that we hold to be true in our lives. When we do that, we can start to bring change to the parts of us that we would rather function differently. And we will create much different results in our lives. You know, 2,000 years ago, they were talking about this topic with Yeshua, and they asked him, well, how do you tell where somebody's really at? And when you go to the Aramaic, in the teachings of Yeshua, what you find is some of the most genius teachings possible on how to live a human life to the fullest. And so much of it gets lost in translation through languages and through minds that are filled with hostility and fear that it's almost not recognizable for what it is. But when they asked him, how do you tell where somebody's at? He said, you look at their fruit. You look at the results they produce. Your results are always a direct correlation to what you hold in you and to the words that you speak. And your words themselves are part of your fruit. When you start observing your own regulatory speech, if you find it taking you to a place you'd rather not go, that's when you want to be very aware and start to change that speech. Because when you can change that speech, you can change where your mind is taking you. You can start to function in a totally and completely different way and produce different results. Let me share an example of responsibility communication with you. The difference between projection communication, using words to describe the content of my mind as though it's outside of me, and responsibility communication. And this is a letter written by a woman who came to one of our intensives at Heartland a few years back. And I have her permission to share it. It's, it's not, uh, you know, let anything out of the bag. And she was dealing with the issues of a lack of money, finances, were her challenge. She was a dental consultant. And there was a, a man who was uh, one of the, a world-renowned consultant, kind of in a similar field to hers who was doing a seminar up in her region of the country. And she registered for and paid a pretty good dollar to go to this seminar. And here's her letter to the person who ran the seminar. 
Dear Dr. Such and Such, Since our brief encounter at the Marriott Hotel in Cambridge last Friday, I've found I have an issue in me that I'd like your assistance in dealing with. On that day, you walked over to me, asked me what I did, told me I wasn't welcome, and asked me to leave. I felt a lot of resentment, indignation, and invalidation. I felt I was not heard, and I was placed in a no-choice situation. I thought, this man thinks I've misrepresented myself so that I can come and pirate his material. What I wanted then and now is to get rid of my resentment and feelings of invalidation and be able to communicate clearly, honestly, and openly with you, and I'd like your support in doing this. What I'd like to share with you is, even as all of this was going on Friday, there was a part of me saying, there's more here than meets the eye. Stay conscious and learn the lesson. I know my reality is this. I've shifted almost 180 degrees in my approach. And after what happened Friday, I realized I still hadn't come quite far enough. Thanks to you, that's totally clear to me now. It turns out you served as a catalyst for me to make some changes in how I serve my clients. I've enclosed some tapes from Dr. Michael Rice that I thought you might enjoy. I honestly think what he has to say is the potential to heal the planet. His series is entitled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And it's about forgiveness. I hope you listen and feed back to me what you think. I have several clients working with his tools and we're finding them very powerful. Again, I'd like to acknowledge you for being my teacher and helping me surface an issue and heal it. I look forward to hearing from you and or perhaps meeting once again under more favorable circumstances. Peace and blessings. Joy. So she's paid big dollars and gets kicked out without a refund from this seminar. She writes this letter. A couple of days later, she hears from this fellow who has an office in Utah. He calls her and says, this is the most powerful piece of business communication I've seen in all my years in business. And I would like to meet with you and discuss it further. He was doing a seminar sometime in the next couple of weeks in New York, and where this particular weekend, he kicks her out of his seminar, though he's being paid for, to have her there. He, on his own nickel, flies in to see her. They meet. He invites her to come out and consult with him with his staff on communication. And this letter just follows step-by-step step our responsibility communication process. He ends up offering her a job. And the job that he offers her is going to pay her more money than she's ever thought about making. And her money problem is solved. Although she decides it's not appropriate for her to take that job, turns it down. And a couple of months later, there was another person who was doing a similar consulting seminar. She went to it, paid the registration fee. And the first night of the workshop, the fellow who's up on stage doing the seminar points to her, asks who she is, and says, I want to meet with you. They meet, and it turns out, in the same circumstances where just a few weeks before she's getting kicked out, this fellow on Sunday afternoon with a whole room full of paying clients who are all in the dental profession turns his seminar over to her and asks her to come up and speak. And her money problem is solved. Responsibility communication opens up the places in us that we don't want to open up to. And after we take an admission, we'll come back and look at just how to do that process. Let's take a short intermission.
So when we look at the impact that our words have on our minds and the light or the guide for our lives, it is profound. Because the mind, when you're looking at nine bits of information out of 20 trillion, a potential of 20 trillion, the mind is showing evidence. And the only evidence your mind is allowed to show you is evidence that you give it permission to through your words. So let's use an example. If I live in a world of I'm right, you're wrong, it's settled, why argue? Anybody ever find themselves living in that world? <laughs> now, what you just did is you said to your evidential mind, mind, if I run into a situation where there's a situation where there's a conflict, mind, if I run into a situation where there's a conflict, you are only allowed to show me realities that prove that the conflict is somebody else's fault and that I'm right. So in essence, what I'm saying to my mind is, Mine, when you build a reality about me, you go to the file where there's information about being right, and you select whatever information you need. It doesn't matter if it's a total lie. You select whatever information you need to prove that I'm right. And that's the only reality my mind will be able to generate about me. And then, if I'm thinking about someone else, I'm saying to my mind, mine, you go to my file on they're wrong. And you're only allowed to use that data to build a reality about them. And now I live in a world of a fantasy. This is what ha has anybody here ever been accused of doing something that you absolutely never did? Of saying something that you never said? Yes. A few of you have. Uh, has that happened to you uh, once? How about putting your hand up if you've ever been accused? I see everybody in the room has their hand up. Okay, just now I'm going to count down. Keep your hands up if you want. I'm going to count down. And when we get to your number, I'm going to ask you to drop your hand. It's happened to you once, twice, three, four, five, infinite number of times. <laughs> For most, it's infinite. Now, are all the people who've said you did something you absolutely didn't do, said something you absolutely didn't say, are they all liars? No, they're not liars. They actually saw you do it. They actually heard the words come out of your mouth, although it never happened. Because if they have a mindset of, I'm right and you're wrong, and there's a conflict where they've made a mistake, their mind can't show them that they've made a mistake. And if what they need is to hear the words come out of your mouth that prove that you're wrong, those brain cells will fire in them, and they'll actually hear you and see you. They'll hear you say the words, they'll see you do the behavior, even though it never happened. That's the nature of the evidential mind. In order to get past that, you have to love truth more than you love your own opinion. You have to love truth more than you love being right. You know, we live in a culture where, you know, they tell us that if you're just right, it will deliver so many wonderful things to you. Has anybody here who's gotten really good at proving that you're right noticed that proving that you're right gets you more and more and more alone all the time? It never delivers its promises. All that being right does is it locks your mind into the lie that you always have to be right even when you're in error. And that isn't a way to create warm, wonderful relationships.
And most people through their communication would like to create warm, wonderful relationships. And so we need to be willing to have a mind that is accurate in what it shows us. And so responsibility communication is about using language and is a system of tools for getting your mind to show you the most accurate data that it has about an object of attention or a situation. And then using words that describe the content of your mind in terms that everybody knows that you know that the content of your mind is about you, that it's not about them. And so that's what we want to look at. One of the things we know about the mind is that it is goal-driven. When you put a goal into the mind, the mind produces realities according to that goal. Because what happens when you put a goal into your mind is that you create a stress. And the functioning purpose of your mind is to alleviate that stress. And most people hold as a goal for their communication things like being right, winning, overpowering. And they think that that's what communication is for. And that's not what communication is for. Communication is for exchanging information with others. And when we can do that accurately, then our relationships with others will tend to blossom. When we do it inaccurately, when we do it for other purposes, our relationships will tend to fall apart and fold. And so the first step in responsibility communication is to make a commitment. And that is that I commit... Responsibility communication starts when I first of all commit to keeping the light on, to keeping love present in my mind, and communicating with you. Now when I set that as a goal, and that goal is more powerful than all the other goals that I've ever held for my communication, then what I will do is I will set a stress into my mind and my mind will do its best to give me information about what kind of behaviors I need to do to alleviate that stress. Along with keeping love present, it's a good idea to keep the idea of goodwill in that commitment. That goodwill will serve in bringing about true communication in my relationships. So I want to communicate with you about this situation. If you look at that letter that I wrote, or I, pardon me, that I read earlier, the letter I read earlier from Joy, she says, I have an issue that I'd like your assistance in dealing with. Now, many people in a situation like she was in would be enraged. She was able to own her feelings of upset, but to remember that the goal of her communication was to enlist support in her healing process rather than being abusive toward the person that she felt had been abusive to her. When you set those kinds of goals, and those goals are set with words, then your mind goes to work producing data that shows you how to do behaviors that will carry out those goals.
And then you create an invitation. And the invitation goes like this. I have an issue. I'd like your help in dealing with. Your help in working through. So you create, first of all, an invitation. You're inviting this person to participate in communication with you. And if you're feeling disconnected, if you're feeling fear, if you're feeling some kind of hostility, this can be a great place to actually make a physical connection with the person that you're communicating with. So that might look like, you know, I've really got some fear about talking about what's going on for me. And what I'd like to do is just, just join hands with you and just connect with you for a minute and create a safe space for us to communicate in. Would you do that with me? And by simply making that physical connection, you can open a whole different space in relationship and diffuse a lot of old hostility and fear. How many have ever been in a situation where you've had a conflict and you communicate about your conflict and a couple of weeks later you find out that they were talking about a totally different situation than you were? Anybody had that happen? <laughs> well, responsibility communica communication means that you're going to take responsibility for making sure that you're both talking about the same situation. So the second step in this process is to identify, this is step two, the objective situation. So objective observation. And here, you want to identify the situation, not your perception of it, not the output of your mind, but the actual mechanical situation. So you identify the situation, not your perception about it. It's an important distinction because here you're just making sure that everybody's talking about the same mechanical situation. And the way that you do that is you describe the mechanical facts. So what can a camera take a picture of? And what can a tape recorder record? And of course, if you're in a situation where there's a conflict, there are two people involved in the conflict, you want to make sure that both of you are described in these mechanical facts. So you include yourself in the description of the situation. So when you give people the mechanical facts, it's what actually happened rather than your mind's thoughts about what happened. 
There's a place in this process, it's the next step, for your thoughts about it, but at this point, it's just for the sake of identification. You're identifying the situation that you're dealing with here. And so let's use an example using this step. Let's, let's take an example. And I'm going to set up a scenario. Let's imagine that you're sitting at home quietly reading a book. You've worked today. You came home from work. You sat down. You made yourself a cup of tea, and you're reading a book quietly in the front room. I come in the room, and I do a behavior. And what I'm going to do, and I'll ask you to communicate loudly enough so I'll be able to hear you, I'm going to ask you to just describe, using step two, the objective facts, the mechanical facts of the situation. Okay? Did you do that? So I'm not in the scene. You're sitting in the front room. And I want you to describe the situation. Okay? What just happened? Okay. What else? Violently. Can a camera take a picture of violent? Oh, just a minute, just a minute. Can a camera take a picture of violent? From one frame of a camera. Here's my arm in the air. Can you tell anything about violent? So that's your thought about it. Now, what you're telling me when you say violent is that if you did that behavior, that would be violent for you. But if you try to convince me that that reality in your mind is true about me, we're probably going to have an end of our communication because you're going to arouse my who's in there with me. And if I'm the least bit defensive, we're finished in our communication. And remember that your goal here is to get the reality in your mind intact into my mind. To do that responsibly means you're going to have to be responsible for the output of your mind. A camera can't take a picture of violent here. Make sense? So I threw the eraser, yes. And then someone else said, I had a mad look on my face. Now, can the camera from one frame of the picture, can you tell whether I was mad or whether I just got the news that I won the lottery? Can you tell? Can't do it. Mad, what you're telling me is if you had that look on your face, that would mean that you were mad. But you know something? The fact that that's what it means for you doesn't necessarily mean that that's what it means for me. And your job I would offer in communicating is not to try to convince somebody else that your reality, the output of your mind, is true about them. The objective of the communication is to just get your reality intact into their mind. So you might be able to say, my lips were downturned. Camera can take a picture of that. That's a mechanical fact. But when you interpret it as mad, you're telling me something that's not objective. At this stage, we just want the objective facts. Does that make sense? Okay. Anybody else? What, what just happened? You left a mark on the board. I left a mark on the board. Okay. <laughs> I made a loud noise. Okay. Anything else? Anything else that needs to go into the picture to use step two in describing what just unfolded. You walked away without picking it up. I walked away without picking it up, okay? 
I dispelled the peace. Can a camera take a picture of that? Can a tape recorder record that? No, no. That's not a mechanical fact. That doesn't belong at this stage in the communication. You know, what you're telling me is something went on inside of you as a result of what took place. But you're not going to get very far in pretending that's a mechanical fact because it's not. At this stage, we just want to identify the mechanical facts of the situation so everybody's talking about the same situation. There's one other piece that's missing in using step two. Anybody know what it is? I didn't say anything, right? What else? I put my hands in my pockets. More important than those things, though. Remember we said, you know, if, if, if there's an issue here you want to communicate about, it's going to be really hard for you to convince me that you're doing responsibility communication when you tell me all about me and you're not involved. You didn't talk to me. Okay. But, but you haven't involved yourself yet. The mechanical facts include, gee, I was sitting in the front room reading a book. Now you're involved in the situation. If you've got a conflict with somebody and your mechanical facts are all about them and what they did, you're not going to get very far in doing responsible communication. You need to involve yourself in it. So in essence, the mechanical facts are, I was sitting in the front room reading a book. You came in. I noticed you had a, a chalkboard eraser in your hand. You threw it and it hit the whiteboard. You put your hand in your pocket you turned around and your lips were downturned. They were the mechanical facts. That's all. Does that make sense for this stage? And again, there's, there's room for the issue and your perceptual reality, but at this point, we just want to get the situation identified so that we're both talking about the same thing. Okay? Then comes step three, and in step three, you get to the subjective observations. And here is where you start to describe the content of your mind. You identify your thoughts and feelings, and you do it with words that reflect your awareness that you are describing your reality. For instance, the, uh, the one about you shattered the peace. You know, if somebody's the least bit sensitive, they're probably going to feel like, you mean I'm to blame here? And that will tend to shut down communication faster than anything. But if that was your issue, then the description would go something like this. Now, I have an issue that I'd really like to communicate about. I've got a little bit of fear about it. I'd like to connect with you, and I'd like to be able to clean it up. And last night I was sitting in the front room, you know, having a cup of tea and reading a book, and you came in, you had a chalkboard eraser in your hand, you threw it and hit the whiteboard, you left a mark on the board, it fell to the floor, you put your hand in your pocket, you turned around, your lips seemed to be downturned, and I felt like my peace had been shattered. Now what you just did is you took responsibility for the fact that your peace was shattered instead of blaming me. Now, I, if I'm sensitive, I might say, well, I didn't do anything to shatter your peace. What are you talking about? So, no, I'm not saying you shattered my peace. I'm just saying that's what went on inside of me. And I'm willing to own that that's what happened for me. And what I want to do is I want you to understand what was going on for me in that situation. 
or maybe it was, gee, you know, when I saw you come in the room and do that, I thought that you were angry.